Joe's Boys. This is a podcast for little women, little men, and everyone in between. I'm your host, Peyton Thomas. I'm the author of the novel Both Sides Now. I'm also a writer for publications like Pitchfork, Billboard, and Vanity Fair. And I'm here today with my extremely special guest, Dr. Tiffany Wayne. Dr. Wayne is a historian and a scholar of women, gender, and feminism. She holds a PhD in history from the University of California, Santa Cruz, and she was an affiliated scholar at Stanford University's Clayman Institute. She's taught courses in U.S. history, women's history, and cultural and intellectual history at UC Santa Cruz and Cabrillo College. She's also the editor of several books, including most recently, Women's Suffrage, The Complete Guide to the 19th Amendment. Dr. Wayne, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Yes, it is a total thrill to have you here. You are far and away the most qualified person we've ever had here. <laughs> so it's very <laughs> exciting. Can I ask, what's your relationship to Little Women? Yes. Well, thank you for that introduction. And I started listening to your podcast and was just really excited <laughs> about the chance to talk about it. So I don't actually recall reading Little Women as a child. I was thinking about this. It wasn't until I was doing my dissertation research on women and the transcendentalist movement in Concord, Massachusetts and Boston and beyond. And a fair amount of research on Bronson Alcott, who I've written a lot about, that my advisor said, well, of course you've read Little Women. And I thought, oh, I better go read Little Women. So I came to it already like with some scholarly historical context about the community that Louisa May Alcott was writing in and as a scholar, and like I said, about her family. And so, you know, I went on to write a lot about the Transcendentalists, and I have since visited Concord many times, visited Orchard House many times, dragged my own kids there. I've taken groups of students there. I had seen the 2019 movie, which I loved, and I had seen the 1990s movie. And just recently, after listening to your podcast, I went back and watched the 1933 one, the Catherine Hepburn one for the first time. And So it's just, it's so great to revisit the story in so many different contexts. Thinking back to my childhood, though, I was thinking about this. I didn't really read Little Women, but I was obsessed with the Little House on the Prairie books. That was my childhood touchstone growing up in the 80s or late 70s. And I was just, now that I rethink about that, I'm like, that's the story of another tomboy narrator, right? With Laura half pint, like she's the tomboy. And so it's just kind of an interesting, like another group of three or four sisters and you have this tomboy figure. I thought that was maybe an interesting comparison for a future discussion. I think you might be the first person to bring up Little House on the Prairie. And that's that's a podcast all on its own. You you said Little House on the Prairie and my brain just flashed through all the books. But yeah, (laughs) definitely extremely similar. Definitely childhood favorite of mine. Laura was at one point my middle name. So oh, okay. uh, I was handed the books on a silver platter. But yeah, absolutely. It's I'm really curious that, you know, you a lot, you know, a lot of people read them the books as children. You read the books as a grown-up with, you know, <laughs> <laughs> historical training under your belt. So that's really fascinating. You're really coming in with this incredibly specific background, which is super exciting to hear about. That yeah, you- and it made me start thinking about. Nobody in college reads Little Women, right? It's like a kid's book, but I would love to teach it now. I'm not in the classroom now, but yeah, revisiting it and 
learning about it as an adult, there's just so much there. <laughs> yeah, which is, I mean, which is the entire point of this yeah. podcast. So before we get into it too much, can I just ask, I mean, which March sister are you? <laughs> well, of course, I think most writers immediately identify with Joe. <laughs> and yeah, so yeah. not only because she's the writer, but she's just like fun and feisty. And so I was not really as rough and rowdy as Joe as a child now that I read the book. But I definitely think about the bookworm Joe and the sense of humor and the independent mindedness of her that I still in the books and in the movies, like see myself as Joe. So <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Just going over your website today in preparation for to record and seeing your bibliography, I was like, okay, this is a total <laughs> Joe here. This is <laughs> Just leave me alone to write my books. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's a slate that I think Joe would be proud to have written, to have edited. So <laughs> very excited to chat with you. Today we are going over chapter 17, Little Faithful. Do you want to tell us you know, what happens in this chapter? What are the big events? Yeah. So this is a pretty short chapter, I realized, you know, when I picked it up again. But it's incredibly pivotal to the story because it's this chapter when Beth is exposed to the illness at the Hummel's house that weakens her. And it's sort of the beginning of the downfall of Beth. And it was also relatable because it was interesting. As soon as I started reading it again, I was like, oh, this is the contagion quarantine chapter. <laughs> like this is a little too relatable. So this is the chapter where Beth gets exposed. And so the other girls, Marmy's away visiting, going to DC to see Mr. March. And the girls kind of spring into action. Like Amy has to be whisked away to Aunt March's house because she has not been exposed before and she needs to isolate. And so this is a big turning point for the family, I think. Yeah, no kidding. This is, <laughs> like you said, extremely short, but pivotal and terrifying to read now, having been through a pandemic <laughs> ourselves. <laughs> right. <laughs> because we know how serious it is. And because Alcott is planting all these little seeds of people saying, oh, I'm sure it won't be too bad. Right, right. It'll be fine. Just take some belladonna. You'll be fine. <laughs> there's a couple, yeah, there's a couple things here. You know, it's a Joe is taking, it sounds like arsenic, arsenic. Right. Yikes already. And then belladonna for the fever, which. <laughs> yeah, they have their medicine book and they're going to spring into action with this and. Yes. Yeah. It's that, it's that 19th century medicine. It's difficult. I, you know, usually we start from the very beginning and we just mm -hmm. go through the chapter, but I want to start at the end here because I was rereading today and <laughs> the ending of this chapter is so bizarre. Contextually. <laughs> yeah. It really takes a turn. <laughs> yeah. All of these things are happening. Beth has been exposed to scarlet fever. It's terrifying. They're hustling Amy out of the house and we get this just slapstick scene to cap it all off with Lori <laughs> harassing a parrot and the parrot yelling pulling its tail what on earth is this about I, I have to tell you I have parrots too I have a cockatiel yeah. and I have a Myers parrot so I'm reading this chapter and I'm like what is this and and I'd forgotten there was a bird and when I went back to watch the 1930s movie there's a bird in that scene yeah there's so much going on at the end Lori is acting so weird throughout this whole chapter and then there's this like bird who hates him and he's harassing it. And then at the end, Aunt March, we should be worried about Beth here. And she like turns on Mr. March. She's like insulting him. And it's just, yeah, it's a really funny ending to the chapter. Yeah. I feel like the alarm was going off in Lou's head, which was like, okay, I have to come on, come on, comic relief. Let's go. <laughs> this is getting too heavy. <laughs> 
Yeah. I think the only film adaptation I can think of that even faithfully reproduced Aunt March's parrot is the kind of less seen one with Maya Hawke as Joe. I didn't see that one. Yeah. Yeah. It aired on PBS. It's a very, it's an interesting one. It's very faithful, but they snag Angela Lansbury for Aunt March. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. So it's yes, about Mark. one third Aunt March. <laughs> There's just a ton of Aunt March in that one. So check it out if you are a fan of Aunt March or her parrot. You'll find what you're looking for. But yeah. So let's well, I was really back. interested in the parrot too, because I mean, yeah. again, since I have birds and maybe we can get back to this, but the first thing the parrot says is go away. No boys allowed here. Right. I mean, we yes. can unpack that a little bit, <laughs> but my first question was like, okay, well, parrots don't just say things like, Somebody's been teaching the bird to say that over and over. So Aunt March is like constantly saying that, or was Joe saying that? Like, where did the bird get this from? I thought that was, you know, because this is all we talk about in this show is gender. So the parrot (laughs) saying no boys allowed is. Yeah, the parrot's getting in on it. The parrot getting in on it. The parrot saying it to Lori specifically. And then Lori responding by, you know, it sounds like pulling the parrot's tail, which I I feel like that's a no. Yeah, that's not good. No, but we He's don't. going to get bit is what's going to happen. <laughs> get bit, it sounds like. In fact, Polly Parrot is said to be running to peck the rattle-pated boy. So Right. It kind of ends with a showdown between Lori and the bird. <laughs> yeah. I mean, because I really do. I think what Lori is said to really be integrating into the family and kind of being allowed to express the feminine side. So this no boys allowed speech is ouch. But... Um, <laughs> Speaking of boys and being punished for being a boy, the chapter begins with Joe catching a bad cold through neglecting to cover the shorn head. And I made a note here. It sounds like here, the neglect of covering the short head, it struck me as maybe punishment for boyishness, right? Right, right. And I'm just wondering what you think about that line. Yeah, I noticed in this chapter, there's a couple of other well, there's at least one other reference to her hair again, and this is this has been an ongoing thing in the previous chapters, right? This complicated relationship to her hair. And so I was kind of surprised when I reread it that Lori, again, mentions, well, he mentions the loss of her one beauty, and that was the first response. And there's this phrase like, settle your wig, and they keep mentioning the hair. And already we know she has this complicated relationship, not just that she cut her hair, but before she cut it. She was becoming a woman and she didn't know what to do with it. There's that whole dance chapter scene. I forget which chapter it is where they go to the dance and she's like, I don't know how to put my hair up. So it wasn't just to sell it for money or just for the ease. It was she's can't just have the pigtails or the hair down like a little girl, like she's supposed to be doing something to her hair now as she becomes a woman and she has no idea what to do. And so, yeah, the fact that she caught a cold because of this, it is kind of this commentary about her losing her beauty. And I think you're right. Maybe this physical punishment for. (laughs) Yeah. It's, she not only catches a bad cold through neglecting to cover the shorn head, which, I mean, we know that to be medically bunk, let's be quite real, but that's. (laughs) Right. I mean, men have short hair. Are they all getting sick all the time? Yeah. But then Lori is later rude about it. Joe is saying what a trying world it is and rumpling up her hair in a fretful sort of way. And Joe said, sorry, Lori says, well, don't make a porcupine out of yourself. It isn't becoming. Settle your wig, Joe, said Lori, who never had been reconciled to the loss of his friend's one beauty. It's just Lori. Yeah, it's coming from Lori. And that's the second time that phrase 
have been used in the book, I think, for the loss of her one beauty and her one and yeah. coming from Lori, that's extra harsh, I think. It is. It's quite rude because Lori is someone who really otherwise validates Joe's kind of boyishness, calls her my dear fellow, is not, you know, at all wanting her to be pretty or beautiful in any way. So it's a bit odd to see that coming from Lori. I'm thinking about because in Lou Alcott's real life, the haircut was not something that Lou chose. It was mm-hmm. Lou had been serving in a Civil War hospital and had contracted a serious fever and had come home and the doctor had cut Lou's hair sort of as a, to cool her down. Oh, right, right. Yeah. Because I'm not sure exactly how it this worked, but it seemed that a haircut could be sort of one way of alleviating a fever. Mm-hmm. Um, I was thinking here, I made note of kind of similarities between Joe's haircut here and Anna Karenina. Oh, um, yeah. There's another scene here in Anna Karenina, which is very similar, where Vronsky sees Anna with the shorn hair after the fever and says, you look so beautiful, like a boy, and <laughs> and seems really into it. And I was like, where is that energy, Lori? Lori, <laughs> right. <laughs> right. Why is it Lori like, oh, you're free now? And Yeah, but something that's interesting to me, just because, I don't know, the way I think of it and we're not going to spend too much time on the haircut because the haircut is (laughs) it has occurred it is done now but I think something that can happen I'm speaking as a trans person but kind of when you're thinking about your gender and thinking about transitioning and you maybe take a step toward transitioning in the form of maybe a haircut or dressing in a way that's kind of more with your gender and you look in the mirror and expect to feel like this is it, everything's clicking into place. But all it really does is kind of illuminate the gap between where you are and where you want to be, right? You're like, oh, I thought this haircut would make me look like a boy. I just, oh my God, I look like Amanda Bynes and that one. Yeah, <laughs> girl right? with short hair. <laughs> yeah. So I think some of that might be at play. It's hard to make sense of it otherwise, because it's such a weird thing coming from Lori, who's otherwise like a validation machine for Joe, right? Right. Yeah. I think there's something going on with Lori in this chapter, though. He's kind of not himself in this chapter. Like he's taking on a role. And so I wonder if there's some like comic or, you know, kind of ironic statement there that he's making about the hair. Because, I mean, I didn't think of it the first time, but he's taking on this role. Not only is Mr. March gone, but Marmy's gone. And so somebody needs to step up, get Amy in isolation get Beth comfortable. Let's do this. And Meg kind of abdicates. She's not really making things happen, but Lori sees this as a chance. Like he kind of steps in. And so there's a lot of nods in this chapter to him being a a gentleman and him being in charge and telling them to be good girls. And so he's kind of not himself in this chapter. He's kind of stepping into this role of a leader here and what he thinks, what he thinks like a father figure would do or something. Yeah. I think absolutely that Marmy's away. There are no grown-ups here. It's right. For Hannah. Hannah's here and Hannah's taking charge. And really we see Lori stepping up and trying to mm-hmm. kind of I think Lori is constantly trying to earn a place in this family. Right. 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 And maybe nowhere more evidently than here when mm-hmm. when he's like, Okay, I'm gonna be the one <laughs> who persuades Amy to get out of here. Joe is right, busy. and I'm going to take her there. And both Meg and Joe make comments in this chapter about, oh, he's doing such a, Joe says, oh, you know, that's my boy. I had faith in him. And yeah, so, yeah. like, they're acknowledging that he's being really proactive. But the way he talks to Amy, and this kind of goes back towards the beginning of the chapter when it's clear she needs to leave, 
And as with every chapter, I mean, Alcott is just masterful. As with every chapter, you see each of the girls' flaw or weakness, you know, like their own selfishness, their own Mm -hmm. concerns. And Beth is sick. She's not like sick yet, but she's getting sick. And of course, Amy is like, I'd rather get sick than go to Aunt March's. And it's like, <laughs> Amy would definitely be like a anti-masker or not social distancing, right? Well, yeah, I mean, clearly. want to go to the party still. Yeah, Amy is. I, I, have you ever seen that video? I, I This is a true viral video. It's that girl. Who's, <laughs> they're doing like a man on the street interview with her. And she has this raspy voice and... The guy's like, what's wrong with your voice? She's like, go, bit. Clean this microphone up or you'll get it too. That's Amy. <laughs> That's Amy. <laughs> I'm still going to do what I want to do. Yeah, yeah. So, and Joe's, you know, beating herself up about being selfish too, because she didn't go to the Hummels. She mm. sent Beth instead. And so they're all just kind of wallowing. And, you know, Lori's like, okay, now be a sensible little woman. And he says that phrase and he's really kind of condescending to Amy. I mean, she's very young. He's just like, I promise to come and take you for rides every day. And he's the one that makes it happen. But he he calls her a good girl and a little woman. And as I was reading this, I was like, he's talking to Amy like he would. I don't know if he's putting on an affectation, you know, like he's pretending to be the gentleman here. He would never talk to Joe in that way. (laughs) Yeah. But it works on Amy. She's like, okay, if you promise. Yeah, I think he's buttering Amy up because he understands that's what needs to be done. I think he's mm-hmm. probably getting some joy out of getting to play like the older sibling in this situation. Or right, the, right. Man of the house. I think also <laughs> Amy would love to be the sick one who's being fawned over by it. <laughs> like when right. she says, I'd rather be sick than go to Aunt Marches. I don't think she's joking. I think she she's wants just to be being banished. She's not going to get any attention. <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. She is wants to be the center of attention. And, and Beth would like nothing less than to be the center of attention. Yeah. This is what happens when Beth goes out. She quietly puts on her hood and goes out yeah. into the chilly air. And it's late when she comes back. No one saw her creep upstairs and shut herself in her mother's room. It's half an hour later when Joe goes to mother's closet for something and finds Beth sitting there. (laughs) So Beth is just like, Oh, no one mind me. I'm just. Yeah. By the time they even find her. Yeah. She's already looked up in the book, what sickness she has and taken the Belladonna. And she's not like, guys, I just, I'm sick. She just goes and hides and they have to find her. No. Yeah. So it's the diametric opposite here with Amy who would swoon across the sick bed and go, Oh, bring me my Belladonna. Whereas <laughs> Beth is, you know, on the verge of death, rustling through the medicine cap. Oh, don't mind me. I'm, I'm just okay. hiding in the corner here. Yeah. Well, I guess it's worth talking about the trauma that Beth is going through here. It's on my mind just because I'm editing that episode right now, but back in chapter 11, There's a really wrenching scene where the March sisters decide to just take a week off work. They decide to take a vacation and all kinds of mayhem ensues when they're not doing their (laughs) chores, right? And they kind of learn this pat lesson at the end to wash the dishes, basically. (laughs) Some Um, things have to be taken care of. (laughs) Some things do have to be taken care of. And for Joe, that lesson comes in the form of a dinner party that doesn't go according to plan. But Beth's pet bird dies in that chapter. And Beth oh. is heartsick over the loss of this bird, blaming herself for the death of the bird, cradling the little dead bird body in her hands. Right. And by the end of the chapter, everyone has kind of come around and is 
tying up the loose threads and Beth is just saying, I'm so stupid. I'm so bad. It's really a harder loss for her than anyone else. And so here, I mean, it's what happens is exponentially worse. It's this baby that dies in her yeah. arm yeah. and she's unable to revive it. What do you make of this scene and, yeah. and kind of the portrayal of death here and illness? The trauma of that scene, which is not, it's not in scene. It's Beth telling what happened. So you're not seeing it, but it just gets brushed over so quickly in a weird way. And if you think about like the trauma of that for anyone, but especially a young child like Beth, it kind of makes the goings on in the household and the selfishness of the other sister stand out in relief. I mean, they all feel bad that Beth is sick. But they all have their reasons for they didn't want to go to the Hummels in the first place. And Beth is the one who quietly steps up and wants to go check on this family. And then when she comes back and says, you know, the baby died in my arms, like they all just kind of don't really address that at all. So it's very traumatic. And it's it's hard not to see Beth in that position of, I mean, I know they love her, but the bird that dies and the baby that dies and then Beth is going to die. So she's the one kind of dealing with death and they're not really dealing with it in any way. Yeah. I mean, I understand why they kind of rush right past the news of the baby to, oh my God, you have scarlet fever. We have to mobilize. Right. But (laughs) I mean, it's almost worst (laughs) just as far as I'm not feeling well, but oh my God, a baby just died in my arm. Right. Yeah. Beth is really insistent. We learned that she's been to the Hummels every day this week, right? So so the yeah, so the exposure. The exposure has been a while coming at this point, but we kind of understand the urgency of going to the Hummels and visiting them. It's not just to make a house call. Like clearly Mari was appraised of difficult things happening in this house, things that needed their attention and care. And it's so much worse than any of them knew, but they just haven't been keeping up their responsibility. Well, Joe had a bad cold, but. Right. And she also of- didn't really want to go. She has this, she was too sick to go to the Hummels, but she was still going out with Lori and she just wanted to be left alone right. to write her stories. And <laughs> so yeah. she does beat herself up about being selfish about that. But there's another interesting line because they really care about Beth and Joe is the one who steps up and does a lot of the caretaking of Beth here and later. But there's this line that says Meg doesn't want to do it, take care of Beth because she doesn't like nursing, but Joe does. And it was like, well, Joe cares a lot about Beth, but does she really like nursing and taking care of people? Like if Joe liked taking care of people, she would have been more worried about the Hummels or I don't know. And in, in the Madison, the annotated thing mm-hmm. <laughs> this book is so huge no hello yes i love it it's i so love funny. reading all the notes yeah but he says that line about meg not liking nursing but joe does is like a nod to louisa may alcott right. being a nurse in the civil war but she's not really interested in like nursing or caretaking other than concern for beth i think so yeah no that that's an interesting thing to highlight yeah it's beth says can't you go joe oh, too stormy for me with my cold and Beth says, I thought it was most well, but it's well enough for me to go with Lori, but not well enough right. to go with the Hummels. <laughs> She's really That's milking just, it there. Yeah, <laughs> but looking a little ashamed of her inconsistency. And <laughs> Meg just says, oh, I'm too tired to go this afternoon, rocking comfortably as she sewed. Like Meg is just checked out. 
Amy is a non-entity in the scene. Meg just says, oh, Amy will be in presently and she'll run down for us. And Amy never shows up. That, that's just not happening. Right. So it falls to Beth. And then Joe is the one who takes up the responsibility of nursing because Beth asks for it. Mm-hmm. Right. Hannah says one person right. can- Will it be either Joe and Beth does say Joe. I was thinking about the role of nursing in this chapter and just of the role of nursing in Lou's life more generally. Mm -hmm. And I don't want to be terribly essentialist about this because obviously anyone of any gender can be a nurse. But I think we think of nursing as a kind of feminine attribute. I think it'd be right, like a caretaking. Yeah. Yeah. It's a caretaking role. It's certainly like a feminized job. The notion of a male nurse is sort of a punchline in and of itself. Mm-hmm. But I was thinking about it as well. In essence, the beginning of the Civil War was one of the periods in Lou's life where Lou was expressing most in these letters and journals, I long to be a man, I want to be a man, mm-hmm. specifically to enlist and fight in the Civil War. And enlisting in the military to be a nurse was the only way that Lou was able to do that. Right. And On the day that Lou left for Washington, D.C. to go to the hospital, Bronson told someone that he felt his only son was going off to war. So if we look at it that way, nursing becomes this incredibly masculine man's moment in Lou's life was this is the way that I can enlist and go off and fight in the war is to be a nurse and to look after people. It also brought Lou into, I, I say Lou because just that was what she liked to be called. I, I like to honor her that way. But that was a period in her life where she was, I mean, surrounded by young men. She called her boys. She loved to kind of cultivate and collect boys, like young men. That she <laughs> and you see in the letters, she comes home from the war and she's corresponding with a ton of these young men. She clearly relished the opportunity to be around so many young men and to befriend them and to correspond with them after. So honestly, I think we can look at nursing in Lou's life as something that brought her not just into contact with the military, but with young men, right? And allowed her to kind of be more part of that world. So I don't know, do you have anything to say to that? No, that's a good point. And thinking about the context of the story, her Mm -hmm. opportunity to say she likes nursing is the Joe's opportunity is within the context of the household, within the context of taking care of a sick family member. But in the war going on, which is like not really a central part of the girl's world of the story, definitely nursing was the only official way that women could be near the action and to be of service and to be in the civil war, it wasn't even a military role. It was still private core of organized women. And, but like you said, get close to the action, be there with the men who are fighting and be part of that camaraderie of it. So I think, I think you're right. It is seen as a very feminine thing. And in the context of the story, it's taking place in the household, but to say that someone likes nursing is kind of does have this different meaning there. Yeah, yeah. It's one of those things like, why is nursing still, it's still so, I I think people's views of, I mean, obviously there are tons of male nurses, but it still has this very feminized view in people's minds. Yeah, absolutely. And and certainly it was that way back then as well, which is why that was, oh, this is one thing that women can do. Yeah. Um, And I know there were private corps of nurses, but Lou did actually like enlist in the military, like on Lou's grave, there's a badge indicating that she's a veteran. Oh, of the okay. So that was like a 
formal army role and she got a veteran's burial, which is interesting. It was definitely really important to her and really central to her identity during this time period to be able to do that and to be part of the war effort. And what's interesting here is that as far as Lou's presence in the story, we get Joe, obviously the self-insert character of Lou, the nurse, but also Beth, the one who is sick with typhoid, (laughs) which is something that obviously the real life Elizabeth Alcott died very young, had an illness. We also get Mr. March. This is coming right on the heels of Mr. March's kind of the worst of his illness and recovery. And that's more reflective of what happened to Lou in the war than anything Bronson went through. Bronson never was sick. That was fully Lou's experience of being away in a hospital and getting dreadfully ill and having to be home, right? So it's kind of- Right, she transfers that onto the father figure who goes away. Again, who goes away not in a military soldier (laughs) role- but as a chaplain, right? Yes. And so, yeah, yeah, this idea of like you're giving service in a non-fighting way, but yeah, he's the one who gets sick while he's away and he's going to, although they've just received news in this chapter that he's going to be okay, but but Aunt March doesn't believe it because he's a weak man. (laughs) (laughs) He says at the end, he has no stamina. (laughs) He has no stamina. He's, she's just really, yeah. Joe says, oh, father is much better. And she goes, oh, is he? Well, that won't last long. <laughs> right. Can't even take the good news. <laughs> Such a stunt. She's just an absolute. It's very rude. It's very rude. <laughs> very rude. <laughs> Looking at Aunt March as this camp figure is very fun as well. Yeah. The role that she comes to play. And perhaps nowhere more so than here, where she's just being incredibly rude and, and snide and <laughs> making eyes <laughs> and consorting with this parrot. I can see why it's such a hammy, campy role for so many actresses. Right. Angela Lansbury, we talked about. The 1930s Aunt March really sets the mold, I think. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know how old Aunt March is supposed to be, but in the 1930s one, like she's so old. She's just an old, bitter woman. (laughs) (laughs) It just has this physicality about her, I think. Every time I've seen the 1930s version, it's always been with other people. And everyone remarks on how she has this little lap dog. And in one of her scenes, she just like rolls the lap dog across the room. <laughs> the dog. And everyone's like, is the dog okay? Like, but I'm just picturing yeah. her there. Like, is she is she teaching the parrot to say this over and over? Or did the girls do that? Or yeah. No boys allowed. No boys allowed. Because you have to say something like a thousand times before a parrot's gonna repeat it. <laughs> Right. Like saying, bless my boots. And right. He's got all these little phrases. Take a pinch of snuff. <laughs> <laughs> Which is obviously Aunt March supposed to be saying this stuff in, in private company and the bird is picking it up. But Right. <laughs> I think it is interesting how she criticizes Mr. March's maleness. <laughs> Yeah, his, no. his strength <laughs> by saying he never had any stamina and it won't last long. And then he does have a relapse, right? Because right now they think he's okay. But I think it's interesting how, like I was saying earlier, not just the parrot, but and then at March, like everybody kind of comments on Lori's maleness yeah. in this chapter. You know, yeah, it comes to the fore. And the line that my eye is drawn to right now is Joe, you'd better go at once. It isn't proper to be gadding about so late with a rattle pated boy. Right, so, Which is maybe the first hint, maybe not the first hint, but certainly a major nod to, okay, Joe, you're getting a little old to be hanging out with Lori like this. Right. Just to be running around between houses. and 
yeah, it's not proper. At this point, you need to get married. (laughs) (laughs) This is no longer an appropriate relationship for a young lady to have with a boy. And it's sad. It's sort of a one harbinger of things to come. Right. Lori and Joe won't get to just be companions and friends in the way that they have been. Kind of the end of that childhood moment. (laughs) (laughs) This is really frustrating. I think we can look at Lori's behavior in any number of ways when he's kind of, pers- he's kind of coaxing Amy into heading to Aunt March's. He makes a comment. He promises to take her out in the trotting wagon with the pony. He says, on my honor as a gentleman. Right. It's, right. it's really kind of like making this very explicit. But I also think we know that Lori's relationship with Marmy is incredibly important to him. We're also, what's interesting here is that Lori says, the old lady likes me and I'll be as clever as possible to her. And he's referring to Aunt Marge. And I was uh-huh. like, when did Lori bond with Aunt Marge? When did that happen? She clearly doesn't like you. <laughs> her bird doesn't like you. <laughs> no, the bird doesn't like it's. And it's, I think this is just another example of Lori really trying to earn a spot in right. the March family. And Thinking he has like some special connection and like, yeah. listen to him and. Yeah. And I think trying to take on the role, like, what would I do if I were a March sister and just doing that to the best of his right. ability, right? Right. And then um, there's this line where Meg says, Joe and Meg are kind of standing back and going, oh, wow, he's doing great for a boy. I had high hopes for him. And Meg says he does very well for a boy. I thought that was just, they're constantly commenting on that they don't expect much from him. And then he's kind of rising to the occasion. But also for Meg to say that when she's doing absolutely nothing in this chapter to like help anybody. (laughs) Yeah. Do you want to talk about Meg and just the (laughs) role or lack thereof here? Because that's really (laughs) Meg. Yeah. I just keep thinking like, I know Joe is the narrator and she's the, or not the narrator, but the main protagonist and she's the most dynamic. And Meg doesn't really fit the oldest daughter model here, (laughs) you know, and they all have their own personal flaws and, Makes too materialistic, but in this chapter especially, she just really does not step up to Marmy's away, like the oldest daughter kind of expectation. And so I do think that makes room for Joe and Lori to be the surrogate parents here, <laughs> step in, <Yeah. laughs> even though they're just kind of goofy kids still. But yeah, I was struck by Meg being too tired to help the Hummels and then just really not being proactive about getting Amy to do what she needs to do or... I don't know. I'm a firstborn. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And a girl. I mean, I was the oldest and I was a girl. And a lot of times there's this idea that firstborn, especially if it's a daughter, is just like this surrogate parent. And Meg never really steps into that. No, not only does she not step into that, but when Beth has the chance to choose a caretaker, she passes over Meg. Right. Like, no, no, no. I don't, I don't need Meg. I need Joe here. And that's okay. Cause Meg doesn't like nursing. It's like, okay. Yeah, it's it's interesting there. We get the sense. What does what does Meg say about she feels a little hurt yet rather relieved on the whole for she didn't like nursing and Joe did. And when she's trying to get Amy to go, she reasons, pleads and commands all in vain and then just leaves Amy in despair to ask Hannah what can be done. Meg is really coming up short in this chapter in an interesting Mm -hmm. way. I think I'm put in mind of much later on in the chapter when Meg is kind of just overwhelmed by the duties of housekeeping and motherhood and tries to throw a dinner party and it, it becomes a disaster. I think there's a part of Meg that is just kind of woefully unprepared 
for the realities of adult life. Right. I think is rearing its head here. Yeah, that's a good point because she is going to be the one who very quickly is launched into those realities and has her own household and her own family to. That's why I think it's so interesting, though, that she's still in the actual line says she's ungracious towards Lori, who is trying to be helpful. The actual line was he does very well for a boy <laughs> when Joe and Meg are talking about how look at Lori, look at all he's doing. Meg's somewhat ungracious answer for the subject did not interest her. Everything's just, okay, let someone else deal with it. Yeah. I mean, what do you think is the subject that does not interest her? Is it boys? Is it Lori's, <laughs> you know, education specifically? <laughs> right. He's talking about doing his lessons. And yeah, I, I think it's Lori or his helpfulness or his Joe's watching him and smiling. I have great hopes of my boy. He does wear you off for a boy. So she's just really not interested. But she's not only not interested, she has to like add on for a boy when he's yeah. actually being very helpful to the family right now. And <laughs> yeah, she just kind of dismisses him. Yeah, I think we, there have been a few places in the narrative up to now where Lori is sort of excluded from the March family spaces just by virtue of being a boy. And Despite really demonstrating time and again that he has valuable things to contribute to the family, that he can play with the girls and join in their games. And it, I've talked to this with one guest, Elle Grenier. This was back in, I think, chapter six, where she read that as kind of evocative of the way that she feels cis women can sometimes exclude trans women from mm. female spaces. And like we've talked about Lori as kind of being a trans feminine figure. And I think maybe some of that is present here and just Lori going above and beyond doing more than Meg and making better right. calls than Meg in this chapter and still kind of not I being mean, looked sure. on as much of a valid member of the family, or I guess he's doing well for a boy rather than, you know, like really Lori is. Wow, Lori's being really helpful. <laughs> So that's interesting to me here. That's why I think the parrot thing is, it's funny, the parrot at the end, but it's also, it's also really hurtful for the parrot to say, go away. There's no boys allowed here. Yeah. That is just this constantly this barrier for Lori, right? Like he's trying to be a member of the household. He's excited to help Amy. He wants to tell Aunt March and he has to literally go wait by the window while Joe tells what's going on. And it's like two steps forward, one step back. Like he can't. Yeah. And so for the parrot to say no boys allowed here just totally negates any role or any positive thing that he's bringing to the family group right there. It's just- no. And which he's very much is in this chapter. He's yeah. just wonderful. His rude comments about Joe settling her wig aside. <laughs> <laughs> Putting that aside. <laughs> he's really stepping up in a way that some <clears throat> Meg, <laughs> some <laughs> Are being less adequate. Maybe that's why he pulls on the parrot's tail. I mean, we can't endorse that behavior, but the, right. the parrot's just no boys allowed. And he goes, yank. Take it out on the parrot, but that's really like the message he's been getting from, you know, he, Joe had to argue to get him to be part of their group in the first place, but he's always like still that outsider. And so, yeah, yeah it's kind of sad that the parrot said that. <laughs> yeah. It's, well, the parrot said that and got that from Aunt March. We, I mean, we have right. to- somebody's been saying that no boys yeah. allowed here. <laughs> which does track with that march. I can't imagine she has much room for boyish hijinks. She can barely, <laughs> she gets along with Joe, but she's also- Yeah, she can barely handle Joe. <laughs> partially critical of Joe. One thing I also want to highlight, just maybe last thing is that Meg does make one call here and it's a bad call, which is when Lori is saying, tell me if I shall telegraph to your mother or do anything. 
And Meg says, I think we ought to tell her if Beth is really ill, but Hannah says we mustn't, for mother can't leave father and it will only make them anxious. Beth won't be sick long. And Hannah knows just what to do. And mother said we were to mind her, so I suppose we must. Like Meg is essentially the one who makes the call not to contact Marmy at this stage. Right. Which everything, like in the end, they do have to telegraph for Marmy and she does get there in time. But it seems that in hindsight, they needed Marmy there sooner. I mean, Meg is the one, right? She defers to Hannah, who is the adult in the room. Yes. But yeah, it was kind of up to Meg as the oldest to make that call. And yeah, yeah. luckily I'm just, Marmy I'm saying, does get back. Yeah, she's kind of citing Hannah in this decision, but the narrative positions it as Meg being the one who decides. Yeah. Which is interesting. Yeah. And it turns out to be the wrong decision on top of everything else. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. <laughs> she also well, needs to get, she needs to get Beth some therapy for dealing with the dead baby. <laughs> no kid. No one is thinking about Beth's emotions in this moment either. Right. Is she going to be okay? Well, she's not physically going to be okay, but she's just emotionally. No. Yeah. And I mean, Beth says, Joe is hugging her close frightened. Oh, Beth, if you should be sick, I could never forgive myself. What shall we do? Beth says, don't be frightened. I guess I shan't have it badly. And lays her cold hands on her hot forehead and tries to look well. And it's like, you cannot, I'm sorry, you cannot take Beth's word for it. Right. She's going to be fine. Oh, it's fine. It's fine. I'm yeah. fine. I'm just sitting over here in the cabinet. <laughs> you know, fever, burning up. I'm okay. I won't have it badly. And there's a mention of the doctor being really worried once he hears about the exposure at the Hummels and the dead baby. Right. He takes it seriously. Taking it seriously. And like you said, Hannah being the adult in the room. We've talked before about how essentially the addition of Hannah to this story creates a situation where the marches are like, for much of the book, a de facto two mom household, right? Which is interesting. Hannah is taking on kind of the mom right. role here, but- Something less than a parent also. Someone whose judgment is perhaps not 100% sound as we see. So, And like you said, it's taken into account. But in this case, Meg is the ranking family member who has to make the decision. Yeah, and maybe makes the wrong one. Maybe doesn't, <laughs> doesn't get 100%. Well, so is there any thoughts, like things you want to highlight or think about? Yeah, I was thinking... After I reread this chapter, the chapter is called Little Faithful. And I just started thinking like, who or, or what is Little Faithful? Who does that refer to? What is Little Faithful? I think, well, I recognize Faithful as being a reference to Pilgrim's Progress. Like Faithful yeah. is the name of Christian's, Christian's little sidekick. So yeah, who is Beth Little Faithful? Yeah, that was my first thought that it's Beth because she's just this consistent helpful, non <laughs> kind of confrontational. I mean, I think it's supposed to refer to Beth, but I just thought it was kind of interesting. I started thinking if it could refer to Lori, even though he doesn't get the credit here, he is kind of the sidekick. <laughs> yeah, I would say, I think just as far as, yeah, fulfilling that role of faithful in Pilgrim's Progress, I think Lori is, is very much the one who steps up here and carries the family in a real moment of crisis. Yeah. Which you get the sense, maybe Lori's been hankering for this because he doesn't have a family, right? I think things are warming up between him and his grandfather. He says, suppose you ask grandfather after the doctor's been. So he's even bringing, he's like, maybe we can bring my grandfather into the decision-making process. Right, he mentions him. 
Yeah. But we know that Laurie really relishes the opportunity to be part of a family in any way that he can. And I think goes above and beyond here for sure. If there's an MVP of this chapter, I think Laurie is it. Yeah. He's not just the playmate here. No. He's part of the family making the decisions and making things happen. Yeah. And even it's, <laughs> I, you can read this as maybe foreshadowing the eventual partnership with Amy. Although obviously it's the 1994 adaptation cast Kirsten Dunst as a child for the younger Amy. He's and very young. Yeah. Very young. Yeah. Like the other March sisters are sort of in their, the actresses are in their early twenties. And, <laughs> yeah. but we actually do get this moment of Kirsten Dunst and Christian Bale who was then a young man playing off each other. And it's, it's this weird thing of like, they are a child and an adult, but it's sort of foreshadowed this eventual romance. And it's just, I don't know if this <laughs> quite works, but because they're, I think that's the bane of anyone who tries to adapt little women is how do I make sense of Amy and Lori? Right. And how do you, how do you like set that up and yeah, make it make sense. But, yeah. but like I said earlier, he does relate to Amy in a way like he never would talk to Joe calling her a good girl, calling her a little woman and saying, I'll be a gentleman. And he, I mean, he's kind of play acting, but it's also, it's a language that appeals to Amy. That yeah. yeah. Wouldn't work with Joe. <laughs> yeah. We know that Amy loves to be fawned over and essentially like he's giving her the attention that she's dying for. <laughs> and I think that's how it works with her. Um, she's sobbing at her fate as yeah. Beth lays there <laughs> traumatized. <laughs> And I mean, maybe some of that is called for because when Lori says, oh, you don't want to be sick, do you? Amy says, no, I'm sure I don't. But I dare say I shall be for I've been with Beth all this time. But she has a point. Yeah, right. Right. She doesn't quite understand like why she's being sent away. And Yeah. Well, <laughs> I think that's maybe that's about it for this chapter, this very brief but impactful, pivotal chapter. Yeah, I think there's a lot for such a short chapter. And I really enjoyed going back over it. Yeah, very much close to the climax of part one of Little Women, if anything. But yeah, it has been such a pleasure to have you here, Dr. Wayne. Thank you for taking Thank you, time. Peyton. Where can people find you online? Where can they get in touch with you? Well, I have my website, which is my personal author website, which is www.womanwriting.com. And so that has contact info and, and info about my books and anyone could reach me through there. And I'm all over social media too. I'm on Twitter, Tiffany K. Wayne. And so I love connecting with people and talking about books and talking about history. And so, yeah, thanks. It's been fun. Yeah. Thank you so much for stopping by. I This was such a lovely chat. I feel like we've gone deep on this chapter and I'm just so grateful for your expertise here. All right. Thank you so thank much. You. Yeah. Okay. Bye. Yeah.